Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. God loves us with an intelligent love. That means that if he says, I love you today, he knows what you're going to do this year, next year, the next decade. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't, nothing surprises him. He doesn't say, well, I never knew you'd do that. If I knew you were going to do that, I don't know if I ever would have loved you. No, that's his pattern. He loves. God's love for us is unconditional, and He's never surprised at our depravity. As difficult as it may be to believe, He loves us for who we were, who we are, and who we will be. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is challenging us to truly believe that God has a plan and He is working it out for our good because He loves us. It doesn't mean hard times are less excruciating, but we do have someone to put our hope in. Well, let's get started. God has got a plan, and He's working it out for something that is good. The death of a child? No. Yes. I mean, that has got to be the, the most difficult thing to grapple with. I recognize that. But I think David is displaying something. Not anger, not frustration, not bitterness, not pounding his fist against the, the, the side of his, his door frame saying, I've missed God's plan. He's just recognizing this is all a part of it. Oh, it may be in the wake of my sin, but I realize that God is doing what God is doing. And ultimately, as we look at it from a New Testament perspective, there's absolutely no question God is working his plan out. Is he responsible for my sinful decisions? I didn't say that. He's not directly responsible for our sinful decisions. But in our lives, if I find myself single, if I find myself unemployed, if I find myself with, a, with some kind of a physical handicap, if I find myself with some kind of financial collapse, I recognize God is working it all out. It may be hard for me to connect the dots, but God has got a plan in this. Reminds me of those old uh, 3D pictures. I say old because it's been a few years since I've seen them, but they used to be popular about five or six years ago. There were these computer-generated pictures that looked like just a mess of lines and dots and colors. Do you remember those? I'd be at the mall or the swap meet. They'd be out there, and there would be this picture, and these guys would be selling them, and they would tell you there's a real image in there, but you just got to blur your eyes a little bit. Do you remember that? Blur your eyes, cross your eyes, you know, put your finger in your nose, whatever they tell you to do. Do something that will make this thing come into view. Now, some of you, you have to admit it, at least with a head nod here this morning, you looked at those and never saw anything, right? <laughs> you looked at them, you said, there's nothing really there. You thought it was, you know, the emperor's new clothes kind of thing. Everybody's pretending to see something, but there's nothing really there. But some of us were stubborn enough to stand there and say, if there's something in there, we're going to see it. And we kept working at it, crossing our eyes, standing on one foot. Whatever they told you to do, we did until finally, amazingly, those of us that have seen it, it comes into view. And there's this crisp, sharp image that just jumps off that page. I see it. Now, those of you that never saw it, <laughs> to you I understand it was just a mess of colors and, and lines and dots. And to you it was incomprehensible. It didn't look like it made any sense. But I hope you recognize, even if to you it was incomprehensible, there's enough of us, I hope that you trust in our testimony about those pictures, that that picture was not incoherent. It did make sense. 
And though you never saw it as comprehensible, you had to stand back and say, some others see it as comprehensible, therefore it is coherent. And that's a good distinction to make this morning. The difference between being incomprehensible to you and being incoherent. It's kind of like algebra, okay? <laughs> to most of us, it's incomprehensible. We don't get it. The professor stands up and his chalkboard and he draws all these letters and lines and numbers and, and all of that stuff's on the board and we don't get it. But we recognize that though we don't get it, it's because we didn't study hard enough. There are some people in class that get it. And it isn't incoherent. It's very coherent. It's just we're not on the right level yet to comprehend it. It's true of many things in life. And perhaps it's true of your life right now. And you're saying, I don't get it. I can't see a plan in this. It doesn't look good to me. It looks like a mess. Why would God do this to me? Why would he take this from me? Why would I be unemployed? Why would this happen to me? And you may be standing, looking at that picture, saying, I just don't see it. Well, don't make the leap of saying, if I don't comprehend it, then it must be incoherent. It must not make any sense. The Bible says right here, it makes sense. That's what it says. He's working it all out. That little blotch of, of colors and that mess in that corner, that's really part of the picture? And that really is part of a good picture? No way. Yes way. <laughs> it is. Because God said it is. And that little thing in your life that you think, I, I, God can't use this. God says, I can. It's painful to you, but, but it's part of the plan. It's part of my overall sovereign plan in your life. Even the bad stuff, even the bad stuff. God use bad stuff to create good things? You bet he does. He does it all the time. So in your life, I need you to be confident that God is in it. Because it, like David, will allow you to walk away from a detour in your life that you may think is devastating and say, I know God's involved. I know God has a part in this. I don't understand it. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem to fit. But in some way, this little chapter of my life, or this big chapter of my life, it fits into God's plan. It's what God's called me for. And I know God's in. How do I know? Because I love him and I've been called according to his purpose. If you qualify for that verse, this is a truth we have to grapple with. And you have to be confident in it. Was David? I think he was. There's a problem, though, that we have. If you'll turn back to 2 Samuel 12, even when we recognize that God has a plan in the detour that I find myself in, that though I never planned to be a single parent, I am one, and God must have a plan in that for me. That ultimately will work out for some good, some glory, some right. But it's hard to see. Even when we begin to see it, there are some doubts that creep in. Because we look at other people and we say their life is better than mine. They didn't have to take this detour. My life's more messed up than theirs. So, God, maybe you just don't like me as much as you like them. Maybe because my detour is based on my own sin, and maybe because my life is messed up in this area because I've done wrong, maybe you just don't quite care as much about me now because I'm damaged goods. I'm kind of second rate because I know there are other Christians that don't have this detour. Look what happens next in 2 Samuel 12. It's quite remarkable, actually. David goes to comfort his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Now that is an amazing verse, because we know who Solomon is, and he ain't no normal guy. He's going to be the next king. He is going to write part of scripture. He is going to rule over the most materially wealthy and prosperous and peaceful kingdom Israel has ever seen. 
He is going to, to be the wisest man that ever lived. He is going to be the recipient of God's blessing. And he came from Bathsheba, the next door neighbor's wife, after you killed her husband. You're going to bless that relationship? You're kidding me, aren't you, God? No, I'm not kidding you. That's why those last four words are there. Verse 24. The Lord loved him. <laughs> the Lord loved him. Isn't that funny? The Lord loved him. It wasn't that he said, well, that's a cute baby. I like that one. The guy didn't do that. That's a, that's a statement of God's choice to bless David and his blunder. <laughs> oh, he doesn't do that without repentance. That's why the first part of chapter 12 is important. We must repent and confess and say, God, we've blown it. But when we do, he looks at the mess, the detour, this second marriage, this messed up career now, this this unhealthy body that my sin has created. And he says, you, you ready to go from there? I can work with you. And you know what? I love you. Now, that's not just a statement of affection. That's not just saying, hey, I, I still like you. That's saying, I will put my favor on your messed up life. This little area, this big detour, this thing, I can bless it. You just have to confess and be ready to move on. And I'll, I'll work with you there. We've talked about it before, but it may look like plan B in your life. But God can move that into plan A. And it's hard for us to believe, but we have the advantage of the knowledge of knowing that this kid is going to grow up to be something. And this kid comes from a relationship that you and I, in our back of our own minds, if we'd lived through this, we'd say, God never blessed this relationship. Matter of fact, I'd feel guilty. I'd have this sense of continuing guilt. I'd look at this wife and I'd say, I've killed your husband. We met in this adulterous relationship. God, never going to work with us. Never going to work with our kids, that's for sure. And God says, I love that kid. And as a matter of fact, I want to affirm that to you. Look at verse 25. And because Yahweh loved that kid, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name the kid Jedediah. Jedediah means loved by Yahweh. <laughs> I want you to change the kid's name. Change it to God loves me. <laughs> Think about that. Now, that was not just a statement, like I said, about his you know, neat affection or preference for this kid. This was God saying, I will bless this. And that had to be earth-shaking. Because you and I, in situations like this, have a tendency to doubt if God can use us. We sometimes have a tendency to doubt if God even still loves us. And the Bible says right here, you bet. Even when we sin, even when we sin. Jot this down, number two on your outline. You and I, in the midst of our detours, when our life takes a left, when we think it ought to be going right, never doubt God's love. It is so different than anything you've ever experienced. It's different because I can tell you this, it's an intelligent love. And what do I mean by that? It's not just that God's really smart. It's that he knows everything before it ever happens. Psalm 139 makes that clear. Before one day has ever lived in Mike Fabares' life, God knows it all. Question, Second Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, I'm going to bless your life. Did he know what was about to happen in chapter 11? You bet. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And when he told David, you're not going to build the temple, but your son is going to build the temple. Do you think God had to change his plan all of a sudden here and, and adapt? No, God knew it was going to be Solomon. And he planned it. He planned it, but this was bad. I know it was bad. That's the tension of God's great sovereignty over our stupid decisions. But in some way, he builds that all into his sovereign plan, and he decrees it to be so. And in our lives, we end up seeing God bless things as unlikely as this. And here God says, I love you. Don't doubt it. 
God loves us with an intelligent love. That means that if he says, I love you today, he knows what you're going to do this year, next year, the next decade. He knows what's going to happen. He does Nothing surprises him. He doesn't say, well, I never knew you'd do that. If I knew you were going to do that, I don't know if I ever would have loved you. No, that's his pattern. He loves. You know the passage. I hope you do. If you don't, jot it down. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still pretty good guys working at being a lot better and lovable, he died for us. No, the passage is clear. Sinful. He loves sinners. Get that through your head. He loves sinners. We sin and say, oh, you must not love me very much anymore. If he didn't love you after you made that big left turn in your life when you should have gone straight, then he never would have loved you because he knew it all before it ever happened. That's comforting, isn't it? That's, that's a redeeming thought that God can take my life and I'm in a situation I never thought I would be in and I never planned to be like, like this and I am and God, can you still use me? What do you mean can I still use you? I planned it this way. That's hard to grapple with. I realize a lot of theological questions there. But it's the truth. And we should never doubt his love. Be confident that God is in your detours. And secondarily, when you're in the midst of one, boy, don't doubt his love. It's as hurtful to God as when your kids say to you, I don't, I don't think you love me. <laughs> and you don't have to say it to God. He's scanning your thoughts. He, he, he sees every thought you ever have. And if you step back and say, I don't think he loves me. God's hurt by that. Not only are you wrong in thinking that, because he does love you, but you're giving him a, a hurtful thought. And that ain't right. Of course he loves you. He wouldn't have died for you if he didn't love you. Never doubt his love. He made it clear. He reaffirms it to David. Verse 26. Something happens here in the end of this passage that is very helpful for us. It's something that's very needed for us to, to comprehend. And I'm glad that 10 centuries ago when they put chapters in the Bible that they didn't start chapter 13 here at verse 26. That connective word there in the Hebrew text is helpful, and they knew not to because this little segment of the chapter has something to do with this story. Let's see if we can't figure it out. Verse 26, Meanwhile, Joab, he fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I fought against Rabbah and taken his water supply. Now, this is a battle that should sound familiar to you because it started in the first verses of chapter 11. Chapter 11, we've had time for David to commit adultery, to try and cover it up, to bear the child, so we got nine months there, to be told by Nathan that the child's going to die, and the child dies, it doesn't take very long, but we don't know how old the kid is, he's not very old. The child dies, he ends up comforting his wife, and he has another child, and Nathan's already come and said that child's going to be blessed. So we've got a big span of time here, which is not unusual for ancient warfare, because a lot of times what they would do is they would park outside a well-fortified city, and they would cut off the imports to the city, and if they could, they'd find the water supply and cut that off, and they would have to ration. It might be months, it could be years before they conquer that city. And the soldiers just camp out, and they do their job, and they sit around and play cards all night. I don't know what they do, but they end up waiting it out. And so they waited. And Joab, the commander of the army, says, Dave, I, I, I just as well defeated this, this Ammonite city. It's the capital. It's the big one. So if you would, verse 28, could you muster the rest of the troops and besiege this city and capture it? Because if you don't, I'm going to. And that ain't the way it works in ancient archaic warfare here. You, the king, conquers the other king. And if I take it, it's going to be named after me. So get out here, would you? Verse 29, David musters the entire army. And he goes to Rabbah and he attacks it, which wasn't very hard at that point, and captured it. And he took the crown from the head of the king. Its weight was a talent of gold set in precious stones. And it was placed on David's head. 
He took a great quantity of plunder from the city, and he brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes, and he made them work with brick-making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns, and David, his entire army, returned to Jerusalem. Now, uh, that's an interesting footnote to the story on David's major blunder, to the big detour in his life, that now he has memories of being childless, a child that he loved has died. He's got a wife that wasn't his, and he'd killed her husband. He's in a whole new phase of life, having suffered the discipline of God's frustration over David's disobedience. He's got the promise of the prophet saying there's going to be a lot of rocky roads ahead for you. But the way the story started was the way the story ends. And what David should have been doing in chapter 11 is what David ends up doing at the bottom of chapter 12. He gets back to the task that he should have been involved in in the first place. God reorients him through a phone call, if you will, from Joab saying, hey, get out here, take this city, would you? David goes, oh, okay, you're right. God says, you know what, you should have been obedient at the very beginning. But now that you've made this huge detour, would you start being obedient now? And this is the hard part for you. I realize that. Because if some suffering, some trial, some pain in your life has taken place, and you feel like your life isn't what you had hoped it would be, it's not what you want it to be, it's hard for us sometimes because it seems to sap all of our energy. It's hard for us to recognize what God wants from, from us now is to get going with obedience, to get back to it, to get to doing the things God wants us to do. That's the third thing I'd like you to jot down this morning. Get on with obedience. That is God's plan for you. Get back to doing what is right. And when we take this detour, the best thing we can do is reorient ourselves to what God wants us to do. Not looking so hard at the detour we're in. Not focusing on our current status and situation. So often we do that. We find ourselves with a chronic illness and that illness becomes our entire focus. That is not what God wants. What God wants us to do is in the midst of our new chronic illness, find our focus on God, find out what He wants, go to His Word every day, and get back to the things we would have been doing even if we weren't chronically ill. That's what God wants, obedience. And if now I'm called to be a, a single person when once I was married and I never planned on that being the case, then be obedient as a single person. God wants to take us where we're at and reorient us toward the things He wanted us to do in the first place. And that takes a lot of energy and strength. That takes us saying, oh yeah, that's what I'm here for. It takes a commitment to saying, that is my purpose in life, to obey and please and serve God. If you and I were taking a trip from here to Chicago, and that was our goal, and for some reason, whether by God's divine plan or whether uh, His permissive plan through our own sin, we found ourselves in Portland, well, that wouldn't be a very good start to our trip, right? But if we found ourselves in Portland and we say, gee, what a terrible thing, I've been detoured here and I was heading to Chicago and I started in, in L.A. and now here I am in Portland, by all means, don't go to Seattle. You know what I'm saying? Don't get up into, you know, Vancouver, British Columbia. Get on the road going east and head to Chicago. That's what God wants from us. And so often we're so enamored with the reality that I'm, I can't believe it. I'm in Portland. I never thought I'd be in Portland. God, I was heading to Chicago and look, I'm in Portland. God, why did you let me go to Portland? This is a, and, and we're fixated on Portland. And we end up drifting even further. And we end up somewhere that doesn't take us any closer to God's initial goal and plan in our lives. And that was to make us obedient. He wants us to be obedient kids. That was the whole purpose in Romans 8, 28, when he says all things will work together for good. Then he gives us the goal. He's predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what he wants. Can you seek that as your primary task? 
Whether you find yourself in a situation you want it to be in or not, that's what I want to be. And I find way too many people are angry and frustrated and fixated on their detour when they need to be focused on the goal. And the goal is getting back on track with God. What does he want me to do today? And David, thanks to Joab, had a reminder. You know, Dave, this whole thing started when you, were out, you weren't out on the battlefield with us. Could you come and finish this battle up for us, please? Oh, yeah, you're right. And look what God does. He blesses him. He gives him victory. He marches out as the winner. Oh, he's got some baggage. I realize that. He, he's got a situation in his life he didn't expect, but he's back at it. He's back doing the things that he started to do in Second Samuel chapter 8 as a result of God's reminder to him that he had a task to do as the commander-in-chief of Israel's army. Well, congratulations, Dave. That's a good step in the right direction. And for you and I, it's the same thing. I don't know what kind of detours you've found yourself in. I don't know how your life has turned out differently than you thought it would. I don't know what your plan was in your mind as to how your life would be at this particular stage. But if it's different than you thought it would be, don't get bitter. Don't get frustrated. Recognize that God is in the detours. This is all part of his plan. Don't ever doubt his love because you'll be tempted to. And when it comes to what do I do now, open that book, get in the Bible, and every day say, God, what is it that I should do as an obedient follower of Christ? That's the answer. And looking ahead, you and I don't know, but whatever it brings, here's the solution. Wherever it takes us, I know God's in it. If I'm a child of God, God is involved in it. I'll doubt his love if perhaps it's painful, but I shouldn't because he loves me with an intelligent love. And if anybody asks me what I should be doing today, it all comes back to being obedient to Christ. And that means I've got to get in his word. I've got to learn it. I've got to study it. I've got to find out what it says, and I've got to do it. That's what it's all about. I hope we get at that this year, no matter what our future brings. Let's pray. God, it's hard and a painful, difficult message because I know that in real life it is a hard one to, to apply. God, it's hard because we don't often see the plan. We don't see the, the logical, coherent part of our detour. We don't get it. We think we shouldn't be in this particular station in life. But yet you have ordained this for us. This is where we are. This is what we have to work with. And we've got to trust that what you've said in your word is true. You're listening to Focal Point in a message called When Life Takes an Unwanted Turn from Pastor Mike Fabares. And if you'd like the study notes, or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also stream the program anytime by downloading the Focal Point mobile app. We're so glad to have you with us today and every day. Our goal here at Focal Point is to help people understand how God wants them to live, and then equip them with a biblical foundation so they can stay strong in the face of temptation. Focal Point airs on more than 800 radio stations and outlets across the United States and is accessible worldwide through the Internet and the Focal Point mobile app. The program is freely available because broadcasting and production costs are funded by listeners. And if you're among those who support this program, I'd like to express our gratitude because your giving enables others to hear the truth and gain biblical understanding as a result. This month, we're featuring a book written by Pastor Mike called Lifelines for Tough Times. It will help you understand why God allows suffering, as well as provide you with resources to stand strong, rest in God's care, and endure your detour. 
We'll send you a copy of Lifelines for Tough Times as our way of saying thanks for your generosity today. To make a donation, call us at 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for our free devotional email. Once you've subscribed, you'll receive an uplifting message from Pastor Mike each week that points you to Christ and encourages you to make Him the focal point of your week. Go to focalpointradio.org and look for the link that says Weekly Devotionals. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. We'll be talking about church attendance and why it's so critical to spiritual health. So be sure to listen Friday for more Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.